BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, motherfucker! What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Decade Project, the One Hit Minute Productions Patreon-exclusive podcast. I am, of course, your host, Blake Howard. Thank you so much for all of your support. This is where we go back exactly 10 years. It's going to be something that we keep doing. But right now, because we're in 2023, we're back in 2013, talking about a movie that this one is a funny one because it actually bridges the 2012-2013 gap. But I don't think actually any human being other than people in like international film festivals might have seen this bad boy in 2012 which is when it has this weird squirrely release date it actually did hit theaters and major release in 2013 so i'm allowing the exception for the excuse to a talk to my guests but b talk about the filmmakers and the stars of this movie it is of course the kind of harrowing uh personal drama from thomas vinterberg and mads milkerson the hunt from 2013 For a long time? Yes. That air be slow to get here. What is that, baby? Lucas? Hi. Kigger du lige ind? Hvad er det for Hvad er det, hvad er det der skete? Ja, det kan jeg ikke sige. Måske er det bedste, at du tager fri på dage, ikke? Så kan vi på det her på plads sådan stille og roligt. Hvad har hun nu fundet på, den lille bandit? 
Vi har desværre anledning til at tro, at der er sket grænseoverskridende adfærd imod. Du skal ikke høre på, hvad de siger mig. Jeg kender min lille pige, og hun lyver ikke. Så hvorfor skulle hun lyve nu? Hvad laver I her? Hvad sker der? Hjem igen, Lukas. Du kan ikke få noget her. Jeg har ret til at købe ind her. Jeg kan godt gå og det er min bedste ven, Slatter. Det ved du godt, ikke? Jeg tror på børnene, Lukas. Det har jeg altid gjort. Hvis du har rørt med en lille datter... Hvis du Så får du en kugle i... i panden. You are not a sick person, man. Hvad for helvede? Du har ikke gjort noget. Hvorfor lå du far? Hvad er det, du forestiller dig at ske? Dem, der er blevet syge i hovedet. Vil du sige noget til mig? Hele byen står højt ud på dig, mand! My guest, I really love, because in this game, all we have is who we are. And his takes, while I agree and disagree with him in equal measure, are spicy and he has integrity and he litigates the living daylights out of them. And for that, I love him. It's my friend, freelance, film critic, writer, extraordinaire, has a great sub stack. We'll make sure we link you to it and point it to you in the notes of this bad boy. It's Noah tell. How are you, my friend? I'm great. And after hearing you say all those nice things about me, I can honestly <laughs> say I love you too, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, all we have is who we are, my friend. All we have is who we are, and you got to fight for it. And if you think something, I don't care how spicy your take is, if you can litigate it, it's all yours to have. Well, you know, the truth is many years ago when I was first starting out in film criticism, um, an established critic got in touch with me to offer me a couple words of praise. And what he said was, unlike some of your contemporaries, when I read your work, I always feel like there's a person behind it, a, <laughs> an, a specific individual with uh, strong opinions and feelings. And uh, I've always uh, kept that in mind and tried to keep that up as I go through this crazy world. Honestly, that's um, the, I feel like, other than being a cinephile, like I love my, my, I love film criticism. <laughs> I just, and all of its myriad of forms. And when it becomes advertorial, teat sucking, studio sycophantic bullshit, I hate it. And when it's really rich and I can hear the voices, you know, my favorite living film critic is Manola Dargis on a very short list after that are people like Walter Chaw, Sean Burns, my dear friend, Katie Walsh, you know, Justin Chang, you name them. There's like fantastic film critics out there and writers. And I just love diving into their voices. And sometimes again, as I said, I wildly disagree with lots of people, but I don't, I think so many people want to draw lines and put barriers between themselves. Very interestingly on the top subject topic we're going to be talking about today, <laughs> but people want to put barriers up between themselves. And I just don't have, I don't take anything personally because I don't know if it's like, maybe it's more because like the mates that you hang out with, like in Australia. And sometimes I share this stuff when I talk about me is my friends don't listen to all of my podcasts. Like, like, I mean, my dearest friend, Maria, she's heroic that she like supported and loves a lot of the stuff I do. She'll listen in and jump in and out when certain things interest her. But like my mates who I go to the pub with and watch sport, they don't know what I do. They don't know what I do. No, they don't care. And we argue about everything, movies, politics, TV, particularly sporting teams. Who's clueless? Why did you bet that? Why did you tell me to put money on that? You idiot, et cetera. <laughs> and it's like, you just, I don't have, 
we love each other. It's like, I don't care. Like, think whatever you want to think. Like, like, we can talk about it. It's fine. No, it's it's great to have folks in your life who are not in the specific uh, film, Twitter, cinephile world that we're in for a number of reasons. Number one, it makes me a more well-rounded person. And yeah. number two, it does help you know kind of where film culture stands in the real world. You know, yes, I mean, yes. when, when some of my friends come to me and say, so what, what do you think about Barbenheimer? Well, then I know, okay, this actually crossed over it to crossed normal over. people. Yeah. And that's a, it's a useful kind of barometer. And yeah, like this year until, uh, and in Sydney, we were sort of lucky because of the, um, Sydney is a mission impossible city <laughs> as much as we begrudge <laughs> the movie that, that was set here. You might love or hate John Woo's Mission Impossible too, but it's a mission mm. city, right? Like just like James Bond has like Bond cities, you know, et cetera. And um, so when Tom Cruise came out, like people were talking about Dead Reckoning. Like it was a massive crossover. People talked about it. People have been talking about Barbie. People have been talking about Oppenheim. Most of the rest of the year, not a peep. N not nothing. And no. maybe one or two people in like February going, have you seen that movie, Everything, Ever, All at Once? And I'm like, yeah, really enjoyed it. <laughs> You, oh, can I watch it somewhere? Yeah, it's on, you know, do you have a Blu-ray? Oh, no, I don't have, okay. Um, yeah, but yeah. you know what? They talk about every crap TV show, don't they? Oh, <laughs> every damn one, Noah. I just, and I always give the same argument. How long is it? Yeah. How They're many like, movies could you have watched? Yeah, exactly. That? It's the math. It's the math. <laughs> well, that's six movies. No way. Like I've got an educate. There's hundreds of movies of great movies, mm -hmm. you know, canonically, required viewing that i haven't seen and i'm not giving it up to watch oh you and me are two peas in a pod buddy. i'll tell you i think i think about it the exact same way i'm not yeah. going to get to them all before i die i'm not going to oh. waste time on a, a crap tv show no never and they're like mm -hmm. don't worry you just got to watch three seasons and it'll catch you. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off! it's not happening it's absolutely not happening but let's get to the topic at hand because we're back in that weird borderlands between 2012 and 2013 and this was most certainly the first film that, not the first Mads film. I have to go back a little bit further with Mads to to see where I'd spotted him first, but most certainly my first interaction with the filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg. And if you haven't seen the film, <clears throat> just to give you the sort of IMDb logline, it's about a teacher um, played by Mads Mikkelsen who has just lost his job in um, what is probably like a primary school or the Danish equivalent of a primary school in a small town that seems to be sort of dwindling, you know, I think the, one of the subtexts, or I guess the tapestry of this film is just that thing that happens, you know, smaller towns that used to be booming, had booming industries are shrinking, et cetera, in this sort of provincial part of Denmark. And while he's struggling to get custody over his son and trying to get his life back on track, he's clearly suffering from a divorce. He's uh, uh, looks like a total sweetheart, finds some new love. He's one of his students a young girl is exposed to some pretty dark sort of like pornography from a teenage brother has a moment where her small and underdeveloped brain like mix mixes and muddles things. And then she says something that makes one of his colleagues suspicious. And then rather than, and obviously in the impossible circumstance of a young person like that saying that something happened to me, of course, the town reacts as it should and as you would hope, which is the out of protection. And he becomes vilified in the town in a situation that he can't really defend himself. And it changes every relationship, friendship, work relationship. And he sort of goes through 
this incredible ordeal um, and the family and his friends and the entire community channel it and go through it with him. Um, and at the time I remember, and really overall, when you have a look back at some of the criticism, I was doing some research in the last couple of weeks as we were doing it, checking out a bunch of old reviews, they were really moved. I think the things that really resonated at the time was that it was this searing psychological drama, but every character felt really deeply human. It didn't feel like archetypes or caricatures or doing things for the way that we're doing it. The, the conflict was like a rot through the town. Um, and, and I think all of that still really plays. When did you see this note? I think I saw it right around the time it came out, maybe not in the theater, but probably shortly thereafter. Yeah. I was I just think, getting it. I think it had a run in Australia and indie cinemas at the time. So, and I would imagine in the States, it probably had something similar. Yeah, I think so. And I was just getting into film criticism at the time uh, when it came out. So um, I wasn't familiar. I wasn't too familiar with Mads Mikkelsen. I think I'd seen him in Casino Royale probably. And, and <laughs> yeah. maybe that was it. Um, but I already thought of him maybe just from that film or, or maybe I, I knew his reputation as like, you know, a guy who played somewhat creepy guys yeah and i because because hannibal came out the same year i think it started the same yeah. year which i didn't watch because it's a tv show but uh <laughs> but, that, that one i did watch only because i love <laughs> mads mickelson i was like i'm gonna give this a watch because it's mads and i'm uh, and i'm right in are you glad you did oh my god yeah he, okay that's so not all tv is like this and i know that if you've got to do the currency it's super hard but I, I think in multiple years in a row, if we just fast forward to now, in 2020, so I saw, I think, another round I saw in like 2020, and I think his next film, Riders of Justice, I saw in 2021. Um, he made a few movies in that period. And I genuinely think that Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is, an, is a stone-cold masterpiece and absolutely eviscerates me. It was especially at a time in my life when I was transitioning from one corporate job, I was getting into teaching as well as film criticism, et cetera. And then I watched Writers of Justice and I thought it was, again, a, one of these kind of Nordic movies that has these, un, like has like pulpy pop elements in it, but has these deep, like absolutely cavernous portrayals of people that have got trauma and just like really realistic. And the characters, you just are memorable and funny and, rich and multi-layered and so i remember like if you said what are the, my favorite two movies of 2020 and 2021 I, they'd both star mads mickelson so that's where i'm like wow. he's a he's my guy like so that was the only reason why i sometimes take a dally and so i'm like if it's one <laughs> of my guys i will dip in well it's good to know and if you were a normal person i would and you recommended hannibal to me i would say okay i'll go check it out but i'm not gonna <laughs> lie to you i probably still <laughs> no won't. you won't you won't it's fine don't i i, I you don't need to say that <laughs> Uh, but so I, I remember being really bowled over by the hunt the first time I saw it. And, you know, it is a it is a gut wrenching film, I think, in a lot of ways, because. Um, sorry, I don't know if you can hear my dog. She's she's she's, she's awake and she's drinking water. <laughs> I'm using a, I'm using a very good microphone. <laughs> and the downside to that is you can hear every move my dog makes. <laughs> um, uh, but no, it's a gut wrenching film. And I think. You know, it's one of those films that has such a powerful core idea that we can all very easily find our way into it. Yes. 
you, you know, it sounds stupid, but when I watch The Hunt, my way into it is I've been the subject of a Twitter pile on. Yes. And I know what it feels like to have everyone think you're one thing, taking something out of context, whatever it is, and you know, no, that's not actually true. That's not what I am. And there's really no way for you to get out of it. Everything you do just sort of makes it worse. And that's exactly what this character goes through in the film. Yes. And I was just going to say, you lean in, the further you lean in, in these circumstances, the worse that it gets. And this movie has every one of those impulses, like yes. trying to reason logic, like talking about where he is. It's making people doubt their own memories of things and memories in yeah. some instances, deeply unreliable. Um, and it's like people start remembering the story they're telling themselves as the memory. And it's, it's that out of context. And then this movie just does it layer by layer by layer. And it just, the, the whole time you're in this position. Um, I think that that's what's so great, at least from the way that it positions itself or its preliminary perspective is that we at least know the audience knows. I don't think there's ever a doubt for us. It's like, he didn't do this, mm -hmm. but we get to see what happens because it doesn't matter whether he did or whether he didn't do it or whatever context it was. It's just, this is now, now that it's there, this is what it is. So I will say that on this viewing, I had some mixed feelings about that choice, to be perfectly honest with yes. you. Um, not necessarily that I wish Vinterberg had made us question whether he did it, but I do feel like the character of Lucas is purely a victim the entire time. Yes. And I didn't need them to question, you know, did he do this? But I would not have minded if they had him question, maybe I shouldn't have been alone with her as much as I was. Yeah. Maybe I did get too close to this family. Or maybe even some, this is what I would do, if something like this happened to me, I would think, am I being karmically punished for some other choices I've made in my life, maybe with my ex-wife, you know, the film doesn't really allow us to see his, uh, his divorce and, and what happened with the custody of his kid through any perspective, but his own. And again, he's the victim in all yeah. of that. And there was, there were moments during this watch when I, I wished it had broadened its scope a little bit or, or that simply he as a character had been a little more um, introspective about what yeah. was happening to him. Yeah, that that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it like that, but it it wouldn't have had to be a lot. It mm -hmm. Wouldn't have had to be too much. It it could have just been with a confidant of like I should just never I should never walk alone. And like what's weird, and this is my own personal perspective, is like, and I know this might sound strange, but male teachers, one of the first things that a senior mentor male teacher will tell you is like, do not be alone in a room with a female student by yourself at any, mm -hmm. even if you're doing tutoring, whatever, it's multiple students, you're never alone with, and if it's multiple female students, you're never alone. It's always a mix of boys and girls. It's just because, you know, number one, from a safety perspective and reputational perspective and all that other mm -hmm. stuff, there are some really disgusting people who find children attractive and would yeah. want to have their ego inflated and do all that disgusting stuff. And the other thing is just like, just not done it's not done and so like in every instance like you, there'd be a time where like a student would go can i come and see you and you're like yeah sure like come see me at the staff room mm -hmm. you know where mm -hmm. my peers are 
Right. You know, make sure the doors open to the make office. Sure the doors, that the doors sort of thing. All that stuff. Like come to the staff room. The doors always open. There's always multiple teachers in there. Yeah. Come sit up. Yep. Have a chat or, or come sit out. There's sort of like a little waiting desk out, outside the door. Let's have a chat. Um, it's so this that- is a stupid question, but I wonder if, I wonder if in Europe, like that kind of thing isn't as front and center in people's minds. Uh, I also wonder if even 10 years ago, that wasn't as front and center in people's minds as it is now. Yeah. And also it's, um, the other thing is male teachers in childcare. It's so rare. Like it's so rare. Even male primary school teachers, like, you know, my daughter's primary school, there's a few male teachers. There's so many more just female teachers. It just is what it is. I don't know what, I don't know what the makeup is or the the trust gap is, but it just seems that that like, you know, younger child education, it's just like more like that. So it's, it's, it's just interesting that maybe that was a shift of perspective or maybe it's a different thing for Denmark. They've got a different sort of makeup, but in Australia, in Australia specifically, yeah, absolutely. It would be, if there was a male childcare worker, it would be like, huh, like I can't help. And I just watched the hunt and I just was praising it for its, I can't help but be the guy that's like, huh? Yeah. What are you doing here? Like <laughs> my kids. And yet there didn't seem to be any of that before the incident. Nobody yes. seemed to question him. They seemed to think he was, a, especially because he was single. I mean, he was divorced, but still he was a single man in the school. Um, you know, and I guess he did have a little hesitance before walking the little girl to school and spending that alone time with her. But I, they also demonstrate that he was very close friends with her father. So it wasn't like she was just a normal kid. She was she was a friend of the, he was a friend of the family, which probably assuaged any concerns he would have had about being alone with her. And I think that's the line. If it's mm-hmm. any other kid, except like one of his best mates, stepdaughters or something like that, he goes to their house all the day. He carries her father, stepfather home drunken all the time. They spend a lot of time together. He, he knows exactly where she is. She knows him in the dog. It's like, you don't even think about that. And I also think about that too. Like with, you know, I've got, um, you know, some of my closest friends, if like their kid, if I saw their kid on the street, like, especially because we live sort of close to each other, I'd be like, what are you doing? I wouldn't even hesitate. I'd, I'd, I'd call my wife and be like, I'm taking, I just found so-and-so. Yeah, of course. I'm walking them home because I don't want yeah. anything to happen to them. And so that's, I think also that other moment of like, especially in that buildup of like, you just wouldn't think if it was a friend's kid, you wouldn't and think that- twice. And that's consistent throughout the film. I think there aren't too many choices he makes that you can you really point out and say that's the wrong choice. Yeah, you know everything he does is at the very least understandable, and that's what makes it so gut wrenching. I mean, there's no place where he really steps out of line. He has emotional reactions to things, sure, that maybe we're not the smartest in <laughs> retrospect, um, like getting his ass kicked in the supermarket, you know, just for fun, essentially. Uh, but there's not too many oh, things he scene. does. That scene killed. That scene kills me. It's brutal. That that and the small town. He just like lets himself get beaten up, and then he has a vis, you know, visceral reaction where he goes and has to react because yep. he's he's forcing himself not to react the whole time, and then he has to has to be something. And it's just like uh, that's I think Vinterberg here with the the unflinching gaze at real tactile, unembellished violence. Mm-hmm. gets me because in every movie we watch we love it like i've got a mission impossible dead reckoning poster behind me i love it like give me an explosion give me a motorcycle give me beautiful staged action choreographed fight scenes but 
there's something about when movies actually depict real violence in its very tactile way, very straight faced, not, not much mustard on it to give it any sort of enhancement, just that, that you go, God, just someone throwing a can, it's going to, it's going to dent someone's skull. Like that's enough. It's very powerful in the film because there's been such a long buildup to it. You know, yes. I mean, this is a film in which it feels violent almost the entire way through. You know, I, Mads Mikkelsen is a, a cauldron of c- controlled rage, I think, throughout the film. And he has these little moments when he when he kicks his girlfriend out of the house where it's like, well, that was actually like, that's a little much, you know, that's, that's not cool. Um, his son acts on his behalf and spits in this girl's face, but he can't express himself the way he wants to express himself because he knows it's just going to get him in deeper. It's just going to hurt his case. Oh, not only is he a pedophile, he's a, you know, he's, he's full of violent rage as well. So when it does happen in those moments, it's, it's, it's uh, it's done by Vinterberg very purposefully, I think, and for maximum impact. Yeah. And I think that that's the, you touched on that great thing about, and I agree, there could definitely have been more space introspection, but I, the one thing that I, I, I push back on for me is that when I know why his wife's not with him, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I feel like that, that, that I'm having an emotional reaction and maybe there's some sense, regardless of the situation, that people go interior. You know, I'm not, you probably had this, you know, in your work life, social life. Like I, I find that sometimes when there's hugely stressful situations, some people are really big. They get mm-hmm. big. The, the higher the stress, the bigger it is. And I'm a, a little bit more like a mad's like the more the stress, I'm just like, mm, just comes back in and it's focused. Like, I'm not going to yell about it. I'll pro- I'd rather yell about something important like sport or a movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when it's like a real stressful situation and there's like lots going on, it's like, okay, I tr- try and bring it, be really small and bring it into, you know, crystal clarity and break it down into component parts and go, okay, this stress is here. But so you can see that with him, his, his instant, I guess, stress reflexes like cut people off. I see your point. Out. Yeah. Well, and, and well, there's multiple and he does it to everyone, you know, he, he does, does it, it to, to somebody, he does it to someone weaker than him. He does it to someone bigger than him and stronger than him, whatever it is, whoever he's up against, he has that reaction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it's there in the central metaphor of the film as yeah. well. You know, the, the, the killing of these, these deer, this uh, tribal ritual that they have, the violence is embedded he seems like a nice, sweet guy in a lot of ways, but violence is in there and it's in every man in this community. Yes. Yeah. That's spot on. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great. But having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code staple two zero. So my first Mads, if we go back to the first time I saw him, he was right around this time, but I saw him, I think, in Pusher, and it would have been about 2000, like, so he was then in Nicholas Winding reference, the Pusher trilogy, but I think I saw him in Pusher, um, I think I saw him in Pusher, I want to say 2004. Or maybe it came out in 96. So I saw it like nearly a decade after it had been released. And it was one of those kind of like international movies that a friend had a DVD of and was like, oh, this movie's sick, you know? And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. That was exactly how it was sold to me. And and then I didn't really see him until like, again, other random sort of Hollywood movies. He pops up in King Arthur um, mm-hmm. um, from 2004. And then obviously massive gigantic breakout is Casino Royale. And I think everyone saw him by then. And then he becomes, I guess, part of pop culture in a big way. And then he starts, he's still making a lot of international films, but then he starts to pop up in other things. So he, you know, makes this, he's in Doctor Strange, he's in Star Wars, Rogue One, etc. So now that we come to now at the time, I think this movie now just looks like like can, we, a, can I can I mention my my favorite Mickelson performance? Oh yes, which you, which you glossed over because I don't know many people who've seen this movie, but I absolutely love it, and it's called Men and Chicken. Oh my god, I, mean, I think I have seen this movie. It's another Danish movie, and um, he he and another man they play brothers, very strange men, who uh, their father dies and tells them. Uh, in their in his will that they're adopted and they go to this remote island where a scientist uh, who is their real father is conducting very strange experiments uh, involving chickens. And I don't want to say too much. I don't want to spoil the wonderful I... surprises of this film, but it is truly perverse and truly wonderful. And and Mickelson's performance is very rich and layered and the full the full depth of it is not revealed until the end. And it's just, I think, remarkable. Oh, that's so fun. And look, in 2015, by the sounds of things, he did two of his best performances, Men and Chicken, and in Rihanna's Bitch Better Have My Money film clip, <laughs> which made him iconic. And I want to just call that out because, like, that's what a year. That's a year. That's a year. Um, <laughs> Something for everybody. <laughs> literally, literally, some batshit independent movie with a mad scientist, son of a mad scientist, and uh, Rihanna's Bitch Better Have My Money. And he's such. I think now, like 10 years later, Mads Mikkelsen is so memeable. He's so beloved. Um, and even from the bitch better have my money, like someone's like, 
oh, you're in that Rihanna's film clip. He goes, yeah, I'm the bitch. Like he's just, <laughs> he has a hilarious dry sense of humor. He's very funny. And I think because it's almost 10 years, you know, it was like a, about seven, eight years between drinks. Um, his latest movie with Thomas Finterberg, another round. I truly think it's like, if, if, if I was making one of those and I hate list making just in general, but if I was making a best of the decade list, it, that's in the top two or three and you're hard pressed. You're going to be, it's going to be a tough hang to try and break another round out of that list. You know, there's going to have to be some pretty gargantuan films that I come across for me to even think about it. But so I think in 10 years, all I've seen is that Mads Mikkelsen is easily one of the most accomplished and, you know, diverse, versatile actors we've seen come out of Europe in the last 20 years. And he can do everything comedy, drama, big, dumb, Hollywood fair, really quirky, independent movies, video games. Like it doesn't, he could do anything. I think if there's one lesson from this, it's Mads. Mads rules. He, he really has mastered the one for them, one for me kind of thing. Because oh, yeah. he, oh, when yeah. he does one for them, I mean, he makes it count. He does these huge franchises with beloved, uh, you know, devoted uh, fan bases. Uh, and then when he does the one for him, it's, it's, you know, European film. It's a, it's a, uh, with the, with people that he loves and respects and uh, uh, another round uh, I think is great. I don't know that I have it quite, quite as high as you on my list, but I, I think it's great. And I, I think did study it's... to be, and was a teacher for a little bit. So it just, it really, it hits on a frequency for me. <laughs> and you have mentioned going to the bar several times uh, yeah. in this conversation as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's up your alley. Uh, but I, I, it's interesting because it's about a lot of the same things as the hunt, or it's yeah. at, at least, you know, I mean, it's about uh, this kind of male camaraderie. It's about uh, this community. It's about, uh, you know, it's about masculinity in, in many, many ways, even though tonally it's, it's such a different film. So these guys really have a lane that they work well in, I think. Yeah. They just, they seem to work hand in glove. And I, I also love that you talk about the male camaraderie of it all and, and with another round, I, I just love that they're all seeking. It's, it's all the bad ideas that you have had when, you know, you do go to the bar and th that's what I mean. The, the whole movie is this one big, bad, enduring idea. And usually when you, when the alcohol wears off, your clear thinking brain comes back and you can go, what was I thinking? That was so stupid. And this movie just seems to have this unrelenting, like they just continue to pour a little fuel on that fire. So every bad idea is there, but it's all, it's this aching desire to feel something. There's this kind of numbed experience um, collectively with all of these guys. And they're just, they're all holding traumatic experiences, failure, you know, self-doubt. And, and, and I think that that's what's particularly nuanced in the hunt and like is more refined and sweet and a little bit mel melancholic in another round, but in the hunt, it's like all these, the character that Mads is playing in the hunt, the lead character of the film is, um, I just want to get his name, Lucas, his existence and the, posing of the question that he could be this sort of sinister predatory figure is so beautifully reflected in everyone's doubts about themselves in all the men in town. Like they, all mm. of their protector instincts are called into question. It's another great layer of that movie. And so I think that that's what Vinterberg does really well. Like actually, 
I love these kind of more rich examinations of masculinity in, in, in his films. They just seem to really resonate with me. And I love that because then everyone starts looking at themselves like, oh my God, I've done something wrong. I failed. I failed yeah. my child. I failed our community. I failed not to see. I, fa- I let this person in. All those well, you really, you really see it in the performance of um, the guy who plays his, his friend, uh, the father of the girl. Yeah, who, Tom, I'm sorry. I think it's I think it's Theo. His name's Thomas Bo Larson. Right, and he's a Vinterberg regular yeah. as well. Uh, he's he's in another round, I think. And uh, you know, because he uh, he's very open to listening to him and hearing him at first. Although the first scene is quite interesting, where he uh, ignores his wife's wishes and they they eat they eat that cake uh, or pie together. <laughs> Um, just completely ignores her instructions <laughs> gleefully. Uh, and then uh, when Lucas comes to his house, you know, he 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 brings him in. He, he's willing to listen. He's willing to talk. He's clearly conflicted. But it's when his wife comes home and says, what is this man doing in our house? That he completely changes and it goes completely to the other side and s- throws him up against the wall and says, get the hell out of my house, whatever he says. So I think it's the reflection of his failures, you know, in his wife's eyes, um, maybe even feeling uh, subservient to his wife in some ways or inferior to her uh, that he has to step up and do this show of masculinity, this protective uh, father thing that he's not entirely sure he is or that he wants to be. But in the face of that, he has no choice but to embody that. And it's only a couple scenes, but it's really skillfully drawn, I think. Yeah, he's he's so easy to write off early in the movie. I love, I love some of these great European character actors because they just have that ability to play like dopey, you know, kind of a little bit behind the the step. They're not quite as the sharpest tack, you know, whatever you want to say, but they just feel like they're a little bit dim. And then when he sharpens into focus and like, he turns it on in this movie, you're like, Oh man, he's very skilled. Like this guy Mm -hmm. really knows what he's doing he's drawing us in and Vinterberg working with him. They're just like, they're just pacing it out for it. And then even further, like more devastatingly is like the church scene, which I just can't get, like can't get enough of. No, the whole scene uh, happens in his face, in his eyes, you know, there's there's no dialogue in that, almost no dialogue in that scene. Uh, But that's, it's a turning point in the film really when he, uh, he realizes what he's done. He accepts the, the beating, um, I, I like that in movies when it, I, I don't know for some reason when a character is getting slapped or hit and they know they deserve it uh, and they just yes. let it happen. That's always a powerful moment in a movie. I remember for some reason in the Mel Gibson movie ransom when, when he yes. thinks that they, he thinks he's killed his daughter uh, and his wife just slaps him in the face and he just sits there and takes it. And those, that moment for some reason always resonates with me. And, and this is a really good example of it. When he throws, I guess it's the Bible he throws yeah. at him yeah. and uh, he just sits there and takes it. It's, it's so strong and so powerful. Yeah. It's, and what's funny is the maelstrom of emotion around him and he's just dead. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. like dead. He's just like, I, su- such, such amazing choices and performances there it's the, he's the only one in the community we really see being contrite at all in the entire yes. movie you know uh because at the end all is forgiven except for the mysterious man with the with the rifle uh, whose face we don't see at the end but you know everyone else uh just tries to move past this and that's the only moment really 
of contrition that we see in the entire film. And it's a hell of a performance. Let's talk about that moment. That moment I've never forgotten. I think if there's one moment in the whole of Hunt, you know, is, you know, despite all the violence, it's because I've never been able to place whether it, whether he sees a man there or what that means or, you know, and I'm, I, I mean, I'm down for all, any and all readings of it, right? Like if you came to me and said it was a man, or if you came to me and said it was a vision or whatever the case may be like that ongoing sort of psychological persecution of that impact of that event, or it was like literal, it was someone taking a pot shot at him because, you know, they, 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 they still harbor like a grudge and they feel like he was actually you know um guilty of this you know horrendous act that he was accused of but man i love that scene it's just so special because again it just sets it up for this quiet and it's like solitude and it's like peace and it's like oh we're coming back and and you just know i think from the second i was watching it the first time i was like oh this is not this is not safe this doesn't feel tranquil this doesn't feel like it's a moment where he's going to go and kill an animal and then eat the meat, you know, and share it and take it home to his family or friends and community. It doesn't feel like it did in the beginning of the movie. It feels empty, vacant, death. Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard for me sometimes because I'm sort of an animal rights guy. And uh, when I see people hunt, when I see people hunting, like there's no part of me that doesn't feel there's something sinister going on uh, in that. So when I see them, you know, uh, celebrating this, teenager's first rifle and uh i i see i see the end of the world happening you know i'm like this is this i'm like this is how this is how we end uh, this kind of shit um but i don't think that's the film's intent exactly i mean i do think they're linking you know the violence uh obviously i think um, that's but- a, that's a I think that's not subtext. That's the text. It's like, mm-hmm. oh cool, more violence. More right. violence is what this community needs. I think I think that's a decent reading. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But but I also think this the moment at the end, it's a testament to the film that any of those readings are valid at the yeah. end of the movie. They yes. really are. The idea that it's all in his head and this man isn't even there, that's valid because we've been in his head the entire time, pretty yeah. much. Um, the idea that somebody is actually still harboring a grudge is valid as well because the movie has very skillfully uh, demonstrated what a threat just this idea is to the whole community. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, I just think it's a real testament. And, it, you know, when a movie nails its final shot like that and it makes you appreciate all that has come before, uh, there's just, there's just nothing like it. That's what it takes a movie from good to great in many cases. Yeah. The final shot where it's just mm-hmm. all living in his face mm-hmm. and you're, and I think exactly his, his expression is the question mark. Was this real? Mm-hmm. Almost. And you're like, yeah, this is, I understand. I rewatching it again, preparing to talk to you. I was like, oh, I, I understand why this is one that maybe not many people would because of just the, like the log line subject matter, you would be, you would have less of an inclination to go back and revisit, but there's so much other stuff going on here about communities and about those experiences as you're talking about these pylons and this stuff. Um, yeah. It's so rare, honestly, when, when I see a pylon and you've suffered one, as you were talking about earlier, when I see a pylon with a man, I'm like, isn't this only reserved for women on Twitter? Like my friends who say the most banal opinion or just normal thing. And then they get piled on by a bunch of idiots. I'm like, they just had a take. It was not like, mm-hmm. 
so inoffensive. My best friend, Maria Lewis is a great screenwriter and author. And I remember she wrote, you know, genuinely, I'll try and send you the link. It's a fantastic criticism of um, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker saying that he wasn't very good at doing makeup. It was a, a, a satire piece about he wasn't good at dyeing hair. I don't believe his hair color would be that good. His contouring is bad. It was just, it was purely fast, very fun read. If you're a girl who reads fashion blogs, my friend just literally lift and dropped all of the tropes of a fashion blog criticism of like a famous celebrity's makeup and hair and applied it to Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. That is so sophisticated, <laughs> far too sophisticated for Twitter. <laughs> so when she shared it, the like hate tweets, hate what I was like, this is a joke. It's a, it's in a post. It's designed as a joke. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not even talking about the quality of the movie. It's talking about the character. I don't believe this guy could dye his hair that good. Look, he didn't even get dye on his upper forehead. You know, like that sort of shit. And that's what I think with some of these pylons, it is like, yeah, it becomes this, I don't know, like this weird momentum tribal instinct thing that happens. And whether or not I, like, I just don't... It, the other impulse is sometimes just like, if you just don't care, if you don't, if you don't agree, yeah. like Twitter is not the best place for discourse, but if you don't agree, it's like, okay to go. No, no, no. And like, it's so very rare that you, if someone has articulated a long form opinion um, um, to just not go, okay, whatever. Yeah. I, uh, you know, that's the thing. If somebody uh, does sort of a shrugged off snarky tweet and they get piled on and that's happened to me. Yeah. I, I get it because they're meeting my level of effort with their own level of effort. <laughs> <Yes>. You know, <laughs> that's, I'm that's sorry, all right. That's, uh, if you meet your level of effort and my level of effort and ours is a bullshit snarky tweet, it's just fine. <laughs> we, we came to this party together, but yes. if I've written a novel and you come back with like a shitty out of context, one quote thing, it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's not what it is. There's a hundred thousand no. words there. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree. If you meet my shitty off throw off tweet with shitty off throw tweets, it's like, fine, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't deserve, you know, a, a thousand shitty tweets in response <laughs> to it, but, but, and you know, but it happens and that you have to do some sort of, I mean, I guess this is what I'm talking about with the film. In that case, I would do some introspection and say, Hey, maybe that wasn't the best tweet. You deleting, know? deleting now. Yeah. 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 Which I have done. And then they yeah. find old versions of it and share them anyway. Um, but, uh, yes, with a longer, more thought out piece, they certainly deserve, you know, a close read, a fair read and people don't get women, especially do not get that. Oh my God. Yeah. No, that's what I'm, it's just, it happens all the time. I see my co-host Katie Walsh on am I mean, our show like Katie, sometimes oh, yeah. she just goes, deleted that, deleted that tweet. Got well, she gets, many... she gets, uh, filmmakers writing her into their movies too. So that's a whole other level. Can you... I can't imagine. I can't imagine being that petty. You know? I don't know, Katie, but, and I don't know what that would feel like, but there's part of me that thinks it is the ultimate compliment. (laughs) I think in some instances it could be, but it's also like, oh, then this is the only other thing that I would say that it's tired. No, because it's like, if it's a bad, if you pan a film and you own it, like, 
you, you own it. Katie has great integrity, you know, great critics. They'll just, if they don't like it and they clearly articulate why they don't, they'll pan the living shit out of it. Even if people are praising something to high heaven, if you detest it and can clearly articulate it, I personally think as a person who deep dives on a lot of movies and filmmakers, and I sort of stay in, I wouldn't say stay in my lane, but like I have a wheelhouse and I get really fascinated. I am enriched by all criticism. If even if it is panning the living shit out of something that I love, if it's well articulated, I will, I'm right or die. It's like, even the, you know, people call him like crazy, like Armand White, who has some of the weirdest takes I think I've ever read, man, he writes well. Like, yeah. I just don't think anyone could say that he doesn't write brilliantly. Like he's, he's a really deft writer does his math sometimes like two plus two equal five. And I'm like, what, like, how did you draw that conclusion from that beautifully articulated series of kind of analysis? Sure. But it doesn't ever lose. And so I think if you're going to write or die and go, yeah, they're going to comment on me. I think the problem is, and this is where I would think that it would get so tiresome is that then everyone notices that. And then you've got to deal with people, other reviewers and critics reviewing that thing and then having an opinion about him mentioning that person in there. It's just like, then it becomes yeah. this like snake eating its tail, self-perpetuating cycle of like dialogue. And you're like, I didn't even like the guy's last movie. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I want to move on. I want to go watch Miami Vice again. Bless her heart. But, um, but yeah, it's one of those things that it, that's, that's what it, yeah, it must be tough. It's tough. I mean, and I don't know what it feels like to have um, my work seriously reviewed, you know, yeah. seriously picked apart. And um, it must be, it must not feel good. But, you know, I, I, I've spoken with some creators privately about the role of critics and uh, had some very constructive conversations with them. And, but they never seem to get the you know the benefit they they never seem to remember you know hey you've had a moment in your career where critics have lifted you up as well and uh, I just I wish they would because that's the whole thing the whole thing is that we um, we call it like it is and you uh, are elevated by that and you get diminished by that sometimes too but um, the 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 good stuff never seems to stick with them as much as the bad stuff does maybe that's human nature yeah I think it is and I think it's it's kind of, it's a hard thing because of the whole, like with the globalization of media and stuff like that, it's hard to realize the profound impact that certain criticism in certain channels used to have. Mm -hmm. um, and still some to a certain extent still does. And I think that, you know, in some of the, you know, freelancing that you do for some of those bigger publications, if you write something really glowing about a film it can get a lot of eyes on it and people have big audiences and you know and and um i'm very candid when things work or don't work for me on the show and i i try not to pedal too much i usually i think a clue for most people is if i don't talk about it if i watch it and i don't talk about it it's a pretty big signal that it really did nothing for me um it didn't resonate and i think that that's the only thing that i can say for myself if it doesn't resonate with me in any way if it does, you're going to hear about it. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, I was watching, I know this is like a weird tangent, but um, I really love John Favreau's movie chef and particularly also love, cause I love cooking. I love his show, show um, with Roy Choi, the chef show. 
And they did a spectacular episode. And I think I've watched it about 20 times um, about Jonathan Gold, the famous LA food critic. And they praised him because he'd passed and they sort of eulogized him in this beautiful episode because Roy and uh, there was another great Thai chef in there had talked about how profound the impact on his review of their little startup, whether it's a food truck, their little Kogi truck review, their, you know, this little Thai restaurant in LA. So it was the most exciting Thai food in the, in town. They were profoundly impactful for them. And I think the chef is a great movie that talks, you know, it's really talking about cinema. It's all about kitchens, but it's really talking about cinema and the profound positive impact that critics can have and the negative impact. And then that dialogue between critic and creator. Um, so really great. But I just remember, I, I remember that, that show particularly as one of the first times that like, I loved this critic. They did everything mm. for me. And I'm so grateful that they gave me that opportunity and that platform. And then that my life changed. Yeah. You don't hear it much. I, I guess when when Roger Ebert died, we heard from a number of filmmakers, Ramin Barani, uh, people like that, uh, who whose careers really were helped by uh, his championing of them. But there aren't that many critics who have that kind of power, fewer than ever, I fewer think. Than just ever. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned Chef, uh, because I don't, I don't know that show. I'm not a huge cooking guy, but I do love Chef. And I have tweeted about this before. I may have written about it somewhere. It's the best portrayal of a critic, I think, ever in a movie. Yes. Because, because it starts out, you think he's just an asshole because you're on Favreau's side. Um, but it is revealed over the course of the film, and particularly in the final scene, I think, that this is a person who wants the best from food. And, yeah. you know, subtextually from film, and he explains himself so well. He's like, how could I have given you a good review when you were serving that shit? And Favreau's character knew it was shit. And it, it's a it's a really generous, um, because everyone assumes that that movie was made in the wake of like Cowboys and Aliens, which was a huge flop and critics hated it. So the take on that movie was that Favreau was saying, look at these awful critics who ruined my career. But they completely missed the reverse at the end where he generously says, basically, they were right. You yeah. know, the movie I, was crap and I'm better for having heard that. I, and the whole movie is an acceptance of they were right. Like I feel like the chorus, you know, some critics are better than others, but the chorus was that these movies were not to the standard that mm -hmm. like people were championing me, like when made and, you know, um, yeah, swingers, yeah. swingers and mm -hmm. all this stuff in his early career that he he's gliding up and then he does Iron Man, which is, you know, fantastic piece of pop entertainment it's yep. awesome like yep. and so watching him go to that and then and then having the dip the drop off and then he's like to reorient himself went back made a deeply personal movie called in favors with the most expensive movie star in the world who's just a buddy who like walks on set for a day don't pay me it's fine um and and like has this amazing cast oliver platt i think the best you know if we can have a hero i love just, him he's amazing um, but yeah, I think that that's the, you know, that, that's that story. That's the, the flip, if you like, um, yeah. on that, but yeah, look, I, I, it's, yeah, it's really small. Like in Australia, we used to have a movie show, like our kind of version of Siskel and Ebert were David and Margaret and Margaret was a former film producer. Um, she wasn't a traditional film critic when she started now. She's absolutely like one of our icons. 
um, in film criticism um, and they had their TV show. Margaret was more like sort of like a pixie and really funny and great and enjoyed performances. And David was like a really stuffed shirt, you know, uh, really, you know, not a very kind of hated, done, didn't like genre cinema, more of an art cinema guy, et cetera, like very stuffy, da, 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 very rarely. And they just argue. They had that great Siskel and Ebert energy of like, they just argue with each other and mm. their two personalities were so different. It was wonderful. But like, since then, there's like no single film critic in this country that could hold a candle to either of them. Yeah. There's, there's more critics than ever and uh, they seem to have less power than ever. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the solution is and I know it's a hot topic. Um, with that piece in the guardian the other day uh, i know there's there's strong reason to have more critics uh, than we used to but we definitely something something has been lost along the way i think yeah i i have always thought and particularly in the context I've, i don't know if i've ever talked about this in a podcast but i we had out that their show at the movies or the movie show it had a couple of iterations in, in this country and they finished it because they didn't want to do it anymore. And I personally think that that was the stupidest fucking idea that they could have done. Mm. They should have done what RogerEbert.com did, which I deeply respect because it was Roger's site with a cup. And as his profile was immense and he was no longer writing, you know, or doing the show and you know he was writing more and more. It's like they curated into this great cohort, very diverse awesome cohort of people that write about a whole bunch of different kinds of topics and things like that. And he kind of, at least for a time there had his fingerprints on mentoring those key people who he'd sort of anointed as the key critics on the side. And I've always thought, and both of those critics in Australia are alive. I've Mm -hmm. always thought like they should have had that show forever. And if they didn't want to do it every week, then they should have subbed in new voices, new critics, and it just could have kept, it could have kept going. It raided the freaking pants off. They still would have been the most powerful mm. film critic entity there. Had some more reporters, had some other things, done little breakout podcasts. They could have had an industry in and of themselves on a major show and then, then a platform for people to write and they could have curated and been like senior editors. And then if they eventually wanted to retire, they could have like come on for the two, t- you know, two or three shows a year or whatever the case may be, but they're still working. Um, and I'm just like, it just seems really dumb and short-sighted. It's cool that they stepped away, but you, you left a vacuum and a platform that you could have helped to anoint the next generation. Um, when when I, was that, that they stepped away from it, just out of curiosity? That's about four or five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that time, we knew. We knew things weren't going well, uh, yeah. you know, and, and that a power, the power that comes with their brand um, would be hard to recreate. So, uh, yeah, it's a shame that they let that go. It's a shame. I wish, you know... There's only, yeah, I, I just think, man, you could have just had them and then introduced different kinds of critics. It would have been great. It would have been great. Well, I'm sorry, but Blake, you're carrying the load now. I mean, it, you're the one doing <laughs> it down there. Well, yeah, look, I, um, the other thing that I am kind of lucky with Noah is that in the orchestra of film criticism that seems to grow, but like in the orchestra of film criticism in the world, I know exactly where I am. I'm up the back, mm. just hammering away, probably on a recorder, maybe a triangle, uh, oh, maybe some on. cymbals. Um, <laughs> but that's where I, I know exactly where I am in the orchestra. Um, but that's one thing that I'm particularly passionate about is like, I'm not going to, you're never going to hear me love a movie because I feel like I need to stay in people's good graces. 
<laughs> it's yeah. just never going to happen. And yeah. if they canceled me on every list and said, we're never inviting you to a screening again, I'd go, congratulations, you can't cancel my bank account because I can go and buy for every movie I want to go and see. I want to yeah. go to the theater and see it myself, whatever the case may be. And so like, I think that that's another thing when you first start out, you don't want to upset people because they're giving you access. And I think that that creates a really bad behavior because sometimes you feel like you can't be honest or you can't be candid. Um, mm-hmm. And, and and you know, you have to file certain things and, you know, if 80% of people like something, they need the spicy 20%. And if 80% of people hate something, they want the kind of sometimes bent, you know, really overly effusive, everyone else is wrong thing. And it's just like, it's... The, it's yeah, and I think for young critics, especially, you know, they want to please the publicists. They also want to please the more established critics because we're all sitting on this on this community board together sharing our takes. And it takes some guts to step out of line and say this thing that everybody else likes, I don't like, or this thing that everybody else thinks is garbage, I think has value. So the people who have independent, who are real independent voices, those are the most valuable people. And there is nothing that excites me more than loving a movie going onto Twitter and seeing like, you know, Bilga Abiri panned it or something like that. <laughs> I can't wait to read that piece, you know, even though it's going to, it's like, say, and I know he's going to make smart points and I'm going to be smarter by the end of it. I, it's the same with me. It's like, I'll see a Jerry Butler movie on Amazon prime. And I'm always like, Jerry is like, Katie loves Jerry. Bilga loves Jerry. I'm like, what did Bilga say? And I could think Noah that like, it didn't even keep me occupied while I'm ironing. <laughs> you know? And, and then I go find Bilga and he's like, yes. amazing. And I'm like, fucking love you, Bilga. Yes. I'm going to read the shit out of this. I can't wait. And it's just, that's the kind of, that's, I, I feel like excited. I'm like, oh yeah. And that's the other trick. Your favorite film critics in the world. What was so cool about them when there were less of us is that you knew if they just hated an actor or they didn't jive with the filmmaker so that sometimes they'd be like, I don't jive with this, right? I don't jive with his thing. And they would try and be very eloquently unpack the ways that that does jive with them. But you used to get to know them. So you're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, it's a, you know, they might go, it's a Scorsese movie. This film, my guy doesn't like Scorsese. And so if he says it sucks, you're like, I love Scorsese. So if he says it sucks, I must love it. That's great. Yeah, or even entire genres, you know? I mean, Ebert was quite famously, like, he didn't get raunchy comedies, like, at all. At all. So many that are classics today, he he panned them. And I still tell people that. When when people talk about Rotten Tomatoes, I say, you know, forget Rotten Tomatoes. Just learn a critic who you, you know, learn a critic. Like, you can like them or dislike them, but learn a critic. The truth is, it's hard. It's hard to even, like, pick one out because there's so many of us right now. So... I, I do sympathize that that's harder to do than it used to be. Yeah. But once you find someone that you drive with, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there, and you feel aligned with them on most things and even, and then I would encourage lean into the ones where you don't Yeah, definitely. lean into those. They're good. That's good area because it's like, where am I growing? Where can I grow? Like, I don't want to, I don't want, I personally, this is why I love talking to people like you. And this is why I do my show. And I'm so passionate about having so many different voices on the show who have so many wildly different opinions is because I want to be enriched by new perspectives. And that's how I feel like I get better at what I do is because I can, I can try and adopt it or like being, be enriched by a new read. Like I'm like, Oh, that's good. Oh, I like that. I like that read that I never heard before. Um, But yeah, look, thank you for turning this great 
topic of chat about the hunt into like actually no the overarching thematic sort of concerns of the movie i think what we've learned is that this movie's application as like a fable you know it was a very specific hyper specific thing but now when you read it it's like it makes you want to talk about this stuff it makes you want to talk about us and culture and the way that this happens and like all these straight-faced people you know patting themselves on the back for being so loving of like lizzo recently are like what does it say about us that we supported Lizzo? It's like, you didn't know that she was doing that shit. Right. You didn't know. Like, what are you going to do? You're like, okay. Mm-hmm. Can't cancel liking a person for how they posture. Maybe just question when someone's posturing a certain way that they might not be the nicest person you've ever met. It's like so stupid. I'm like, are we adults? I saw mm-hmm. a really serious journalist on a on a podcast talking about the other day. I was like, why are you talking about this? You're so much smarter than this conversation. Don't yes. waste your time. So I think what I th- want to thank you is perfect person to talk about this perfect topic with, because I think that the, what we've learned is Mads rules. Vinterberg makes really great movies about masculinity and community. And that this is definitely worth a rewatch. And that this movie is now like a cultural fable in 2023 in a way that it probably never would be appreciated at the time. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad this conversation went where it did, because uh, I was afraid we were going to end up talking about Woody Allen. And this is way better <laughs> than that. Good. <laughs> I was not going there. There's enough, there's enough material on Woody <laughs> Allen that, and, and that, yeah, we don't need to go there. Noah, thank you so much. I'll make sure I point everyone out to your Substack, And I think we maybe have one more of these in us before the year's out because you're working on a book right now. Do you want to just give that a shout out so that we can uh, line up our next chat? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I've turned in this book. Uh, it's coming out next year. It's about baseball cinema, really like, and it's, I love baseball. I love baseball movies. And this is an attempt to take the genre seriously um, and hopefully appeal to people beyond just people who love movies, but you know, people who love baseball and maybe haven't thought that critically about films the way that we do. And it's coming out uh, next spring at some point. And in the meantime, there is a 2013 film, a very good baseball film called 42. Right. That I guess you and I are going to discuss later this year. Yes, let's do that. Awesome. I can't wait. And that I talk about something that cuts through in Australia. We are extremely envious of the ability for American cinema to have a baseball genre because we don't have like, I always talk about we've got our biggest sports in the country, cricket and probably rugby league. Um, The two of the biggest just for a population, you know, we're a weird regional country. There's certain sports that are more popular in parts of the country than others. But we're like, where's our Bull Durham, you know, for cricket? You know, where's, you know, where's our X? Insert whatever great, amazing baseball movie for like a cricket where's where's our version of that and there feels like there's stories and like all of the stories we make are just these ghastly biopics with shit wigs and bad makeup and <laughs> awful for cinematography um but no i'm really looking forward to reading there are some amazing baseball movies um and maybe australia has one in them because i did watch australia in the world baseball classic this year and uh, i i don't know if that would be a movie they didn't get too far uh, but maybe next time in a few years, they're going to do it again. So maybe that'll be Australia's shining baseball moment I, worthy I, of being immortalized on screen. I, I would love that. I would, I, would love that. Um, I would love if that actually could happen. But yeah, no, sports movies in general, but specifically baseball. Excited to read it. Um, we'll 
wrap up now, but we'll definitely do 42 because, uh, you know, one thing we have learned about that is the impact of Chadwick, the impact oh, yeah. of Chad in 2023 and the long shadow cast. So still very relevant for us to talk about, but thank Absolutely. you so much, my man, for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was a great pleasure. Thanks, Blake. And it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then he might not have succeeded. It's incredible because like if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark, a uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many <laughs> properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, The Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about The Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's, uh, easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's a, such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment. In, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see 10 of those, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you know I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything, and God bless you, but Master and Commander <laughs> should have been it's one of those things again i i am not uh, i'm not a seafaring man sir <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity there's a sense of really watching 
a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that, that you can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this, Blake. That's right. Our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.